Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome, everyone, to Election Integrity, Preventing the Coming Crisis in the 2020 Election, a joint event held by the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation and the Heritage Foundation. I'm Rick Graber, president of the Bradley Foundation. In a few short months, Americans will cast their ballot in what really does seem to be the most consequential election of our time. The integrity of our, our election system should always be protected. But with so much at stake, we must be more vigilant than ever to ensure the integrity and the safety of every person's vote. We're witnessing massive challenges to statutory election procedures in state after state across the country. We'll discuss those challenges and in particular, what you can do to help where you live and vote. Before getting started, a few housekeeping items. All attendees are in listen only mode. Our session will be recorded and available within 48 hours, and we encourage questions. So please submit your questions in the Q&A box on the webinar dashboard. I'm very pleased to introduce three outstanding panelists who will discuss the threats and tangible action items needed to keep our elections fair and free. And since time is very short, I'll keep those introductions real short. We're joined first by Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. As manager of Heritage's Election Law and Reform Initiative, Hans studies and writes about campaign finance restrictions, voter fraud and voter ID, enforcement of federal voting rights laws, administration of elections, and voting equipment standards. Also with us is Jay Christian Adams, president and general counsel of the Public Interest Legal Foundation and the founder of the Election Law Center. Christian served from 2005 to 2010 in the voting section at the United States Department of Justice. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Injustice, exposing the racial agenda of the Obama Justice Department, which examines the department's election and voting rights record. Finally, please welcome Rick Essenberg, the founder and current president and general counsel of the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, or Will. Under Rick's leadership, Will has grown into one of the most active state-based think tanks and litigation centers in the country. Rick is a frequent litigator in state and federal courts and a nationally recognized scholar and commentator on constitutional law, particularly the First Amendment's guarantees of freedom of speech and religion. So thanks to all of you for being here. Let's jump right in and start with Hans, who will provide an overview of the 2020 challenges to election integrity and how those factors may play out in the November elections. Hans, over to you. Rick, thank you very much. And uh, it's an honor to be uh, on a panel with, with such uh, uh, great people, uh, two experts I've known for a long time uh, on this issue. Um, you know, there was a lot of litigation and controversy in 2000 um, in Florida. Uh, over the counting of ballots and who would uh, be president. And since then, we've seen uh, a, a, a big increase in litigation intended to affect the rules uh, governing elections and the administration of elections. 
But this year we've seen an explosion of litigation uh, that I have never seen in, in my entire uh, three decades uh, working in this area. At the last count, there's something like 150 lawsuits that have been filed all over the country uh, trying to change how we conduct the election in November. And uh, the main thing that's being pushed is the idea that we should switch to an all male election because supposedly it's too dangerous for people to vote in person because of the COVID-19 uh, health crisis. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that, first of all, uh, just very quickly, look, the difference between absentee ballots and all male elections is this. Uh, 45 states, uh, you can vote by absentee ballot uh, and, and no one disputes that we need those for people who are physically disabled or sick or otherwise can't make it to the polls. Uh, five states, unfortunately, have switched to all mail elections in which they simply mail an absentee or mail-in ballot to all registered voters. And the push that is going on is to basically force the 45 other states, the District of Columbia, to switch to what those five states are doing. Here's the problem with that, uh, and there's two. First of all, absentee or mail-in ballots are the ballots mo most vulnerable to everything from being stolen out of people's mailboxes to being altered, forged, uh, and uh, they they subject voters to being pressured, coerced, and intimidated by campaign staffers, uh, party activists, and political guns for hire. Why is it? Well, because they are voted uh, outside the supervision of election officials and outside the observation of poll watchers. And remember, transparency is very, very important to maintaining the integrity of our election process. Um, look, every state has laws against electioneering. That means that candidates can't show up at your polling place and pressure you to vote for them. Those rules, unfortunately, don't apply in people's homes. So we, so we see when we look at the election fraud that occurs, and despite what you may read in the New York Times or Washington Post, we do have, unfortunately, election fraud in this country. In fact, the Supreme Court back in 2008, when it upheld Indiana's voter ID law, said, the U.S. has a long history of voter fraud that's been documented by journalists and historians. Um, we just added six new voter fraud cases, uh, proven cases, to our database that we maintain at the Heritage Foundation. We now have 1,296 proven cases from across the country. This is not a comprehensive list. It's just a sampling of cases. The largest number of cases of one kind of fraud in that database involve absentee ballots. And again, it's because of the vulnerabilities uh, that I've just discussed. Um, look, right now, uh, the results in Patterson, New Jersey, are in question. They switched to an all-male election for the municipal election a couple of weeks ago. And um, there's already been four individuals there arrested and criminally charged with engaging in voter fraud. And two of the candidates now apparently have agreed to a new election because they can't really determine who who won because of the many problems there. Aside from the fraud problem, we have another issue, which is with an all-male election, you are basically handing over uh, a very valuable commodity ballot and something very important elections to the U.S. Postal Service. Anyone who thinks that's a good idea should realize this. Uh, in reports filed by the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, they file a report with Congress every four, uh, two years after every federal election. In the last four federal elections, almost three million absentee or mail-in ballots were misdelivered 
1.3 million were rejected. In other words, uh, voters got the ballots, filled them out, sent them back to election officials, and then they were rejected by election officials for not complying with the various uh, state law standards, and the ballots were not counted. Over 28 million ballots are, the status of them is unknown, unaccounted for. In other words, election officials uh, put them in the mail to uh, voters who'd requested them, and then they never had another word. Yeah, it's very possible the voters uh, just decide, who had requested the ballots decided they didn't want to vote them, but we don't really know uh, because they are unaccounted for. Uh, anyone who doubts this is a problem, just look at the most recent primaries held in Wisconsin, the District of Columbia, Maryland, and in New York. Uh, there are verified reports out of all of those states of thousands of individuals um, not receiving the ballots that they had requested. Uh, the IG for the Postal Service issued a report just recently about Wisconsin's April 7th primary, about thousands of ballots who were, that were found in a mail processing facility after the election had never been delivered to voters. That is a continuing problem. Uh, two other things about this. The idea that we can't vote in person uh, is simply not the case. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which, as you know, is the uh, federal agency that's on top of uh, dealing with health crises in this country, including COVID-19, at the end of June issued a, uh, a document that is guidelines for holding in-person elections. And if you do the health safety protocols that they recommend, it's everything we're seeing when we go shopping at our grocery stores, line spacing for voters, wearing masks, use of disposable materials like disposable pens to mark ballots. Uh, we can safely vote in person. We know it can be done because, in fact, Wisconsin on April 7th held its primary election. Yes, uh, many more uh, people did vote by mail and had problems doing so. But also several hundred thousand uh, Wisconsin residents showed up at their polls to vote. The CDC also issued another report just recently about that election, indicating that there was no spike in COVID-19 infections. Why? Because Wisconsin followed all the recommended health uh, and safety procedures that have been recommended by healthcare experts. Uh, the final thing on this uh, is, is this. Um, the push in the litigation and the bills that have been proposed, for example, on the House side, all trying to push us to all mail elections, uh, also are pushing to get rid of the basic safe uh, uh, security protocols in place to try to ensure people don't cheat. Uh, the House bill, for example, that Nancy Pelosi pushed uh, would have said that no voter ID uh, requirements could be uh, applied to voting in the November election. They've been pushing for things like uh, getting rid of witness signature requirements uh, for absentee ballots. They've been trying to legalize vote harvesting all over the country, overriding state laws that ban vote harvesting. For, you, for those of you who don't realize what that is or understand what that means, it's this. Look, if you vote by absentee or mail-in ballot, you can mail the ballot back, trusting the Postal Service to deliver it. Uh, you can deliver it yourself or a member of your family can. Uh, but other individuals, third parties, are generally uh, banned from doing that, except in states that have legalized vote harvesting, in which they're saying anybody can show up at your front door and pick up your ballot to deliver. That means that candidates, campaign staffers, party activists, political consultants, people who have a stake in the outcome of the election, 
have the ability to come get your ballot, uh, pressure you to vote a particular way, and then supposedly deliver your ballot. Anyone who thinks that's a good idea, uh, take a look. Two years ago, the only contested congressional race in the country, North Carolina 9, that election was overturned because of illegal vote harvesting, and the vote harvesters, uh, many of whom were criminally charged and indicted, were, were doing everything from stealing people's ballots to forging signatures to filling in the ballots for voters. Now, it doesn't make much sense to say that you're trying to deal with COVID-19 uh, when you want to legalize allowing strangers to go from door to door to door to, to pick up people's ballots. I can't think of a faster way of trying to spread COVID-19. So you can see that there are ulterior motives there. Uh, we can all vote in person in November. We should insist on it. Uh, people who are at highest at risk perhaps should vote by absentee ballot. And I would leave you just with this thought about the unreliability of having the Postal Service try to deliver tens of billions of ballots. If you won the Powerball lottery, would you be willing to put your ticket in the mail to send to the lottery agency, or would you want to deliver it in person the same way you want to be able to vote in person and you put your ballot into the ballot box? I think most people would answer that, no, they wouldn't trust the US mail to deliver their lottery ticket and ballots and the ability to vote in this country are just as valuable a commodity. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Hans, for those great comments. Uh, let's turn now to Christian for an overview of how the left is deploying resources this cycle to challenge election laws and in the process, threaten the integrity of our upcoming election. Christian, let's hear Thank from you. you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for working on this great event. There's been some sobering data out of Nevada, which I will get to later in, in my talk. But <clears throat> first, there's really two things I want to mention uh, about how the left is deploying resources. The first is that they're trying to change the laws. Now, remember, we have laws in this country about elections so the democratic process can govern the rules. In other words, legislatures meet, they pass laws, governors sign those laws, we follow those laws. But all across the country, for example, in places like Virginia, state boards and election officials are just suspending those laws, and they're suspending them under pressure. For example, the postmark requirement, the delivery date requirement, these laws are being suspended by government officials without a democratic process. One of the reasons they are is because of the enormous pressure being put on them by the left. The left has funding streams that have been activated this year that stagger the imagination. The left has always known that process, when I say process, I mean the rules of the election, uh, determines policy. Policy is downstream from process. If you care about policy, care about process. And the left has known that for a long time. I think conservatives are waking up to that by virtue of the number of people participating in this webinar today. But for a long time, it was mostly the left that was focused on this. So what is happening in 2020? <clears throat> Pardon me. A huge number of groups with deep, deep pockets. And when I say deep, I don't mean $100,000. I don't mean a million dollars. I don't even mean $10 million. I mean hundreds of millions of dollars are fueling the effort to alter process. Who are they? Of course, everybody knows Soros and open society, but it's much more sophisticated than that. There's things such as Wellspring Financial, Arabelle Advisors, Democracy Fund, 
this network of groups that cycle money and do things with it, including fund litigation. But I want to alert you to something even more uh, uh, conniving than I think anybody on this call thought possible. Back in the spring, the civil rights groups, the donors had a, a lot of chatter about a new idea. And what was that new idea? Let's take our surplus of philanthropy and let's start giving it directly to governments, directly to election officials, so they can do what they want. If the legislature doesn't have vote by mail, if the state board of elections doesn't do something the way they want, let's just give it to a local election office and we can, we can be on the ground that way. Now that sounds ri ridiculous. That sounds uh, like something I don't think anybody had thought of two years ago was the left-wing philanthropic streams directly funding government election offices. Well, just when you think you can't make this stuff up, comes a report that they're doing it in Wisconsin. The Center for Technology and Civic Life, a 501c3 that before this year had a budget of about $900,000, has donated $6.8 million to four Wisconsin governments, state, or excuse me, county election offices in Milwaukee, Madison, Racine, Green Bay, epicenters of either get out the vote uh, desires. So they're pouring millions of dollars into what I call an outside inside strategy. The influencers on the outside pay the people on the inside. Now, uh, how, who's on top of this? Virtually nobody, because nobody saw this coming. But this is something that the civil rights groups, the philanthropic streams uh, earlier this year spent a great deal of time talking about. How extensive is it? I don't know. Is it taking place in Michigan? It would seem that would be a, a hardy target for them to, to do. But I, that is something that the left is doing to influence the process. Is it illegal? No. You can, a 501c3 can give money to the government. It's just nobody's usually that ridiculous that they want to fund the government. But that's what's happening in 2020. So they can get their particular boots on the ground inside the government apparatus. Okay. So one of their top priorities is mail-in voting. And it sounded great in the springtime, didn't it, when COVID was getting out of control? Well, then reality set in. And we now have data, real numbers, on how well vote-by-mail works. For example, the Public Interest Legal Foundation just got information from Nevada. If you've seen that circulating in the media, that was a FOIA that we've been working on. Clark County, Nevada sent out 1.3 million ballots and only 300,000 came back. Uh, 223,000 were returned as undeliverable. And I'm sorry, of those 303,000 that came back were counted, 7,000 were actually rejected before that. So 7,000 people lost the right to vote, were disenfranchised, and probably don't even know it in, in there. Washoe County, which is, which is uh, Reno. Reno had a similar problem where uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, ballots uh, were 27,640 rejected as undeliverable. Okay, so the question is, what, what can you do about this? Well, first of all, understand the reality that the voter rolls are a mess. And if you mail out ballots to people in mass, you run into problems. We sued Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. We built a database nationwide of all the various problems that exist, and we're able to see where you have problems. Pennsylvania, for example, a fellow by the name of Rashawn Slade was registered to vote seven times, active registrations in Pittsburgh. 
uh, and he did this just before the 2016 election. So mail ballots are an integral part of what the left wants to do. And while they're busy violating the rules, suspending the laws, it's an integrated strategy to use their philanthropy to affect the outcome of the election. After this webinar, you're going to get, have the opportunity to get materials that are being sent out by Heritage and Bradley. In those materials are some great photographs I'm including of all the undeliverable ballots in Nevada. And you can see them stacked up, laying on the ground in apartment complexes, just sitting there uh, out in the open in public places. That's not how we want to elect people to, to, to high office in this country. So uh, with that, I, I, I thank you all for your time. Uh, and um, please, if you do anything this year, please, please consider serving as an election official. Your county needs you, and that's the best way you could probably help out. So back to you, Rick, on that. Thanks so much, Christian. Uh, really frightening to, to hear some of those comments. Uh, another reminder to please send in your questions. We've got quite a few questions already, and we will have some time uh, uh, at the end to respond to those questions. Uh, at this time, let me now call upon Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty President and General Counsel Rick Essenberg to discuss how his organization is working to protect election integrity on the ground in Wisconsin, obviously a, a key swing state. Rick. Well, thank you, Rick. Um, it's an honor to be on this panel, um, particularly with Hans and Christian, uh, whose work I have uh, admired and learned from for many years. Um, the perspective that I want to bring is one of being a litigator on the ground with respect to uh, some of the efforts that um, uh, Christian described. Um, I agree uh, that uh, we should not and we will not go to uh, a mail-in election in which a live ballot is distributed to everyone who's on the registration rolls. I agree that we should not uh, cancel in-person voting. Uh, we resisted that uh, in Wisconsin, took some litigation uh, the day before the election to make that happen. And as uh, Hans pointed out, we did not have uh, the COVID explosion uh, that everyone had uh, had predicted, uh, notwithstanding the fact of the city of Milwaukee in particular, uh, which unintentionally or intentionally decided to sabotage by the election uh, by uh, holding uh, open five polling places for a city of over 600,000 people. Nevertheless, uh, we managed to get through the election. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, we are going to have substantial voting by mail this fall. Uh, 34 states in the District of Columbia, including virtually every swing state, uh, permits no excuse absentee balloting. Uh, and is every reason to think that voters are going to take advantage of that. Uh, in Here in Wisconsin in uh, 2016, about 27 percent of the votes were cast absentee. And uh, that's consistent with the national average for that election cycle. But last spring, uh, amidst fear of the pandemic, over 70% of voters cast their ballot absentee and almost all of them cast them by mail. And having done it once, uh, we're going to see it happening again. And so our focus has been uh, accepting the fact that a lot of ballots are going to get cast by mail, whether we like it or not, how do we preserve the safeguards that are in place? Now, uh, Christian described uh, some litigation which is attempting to do away with those safeguards, and organizations like mine and organizations like, uh, like Christian's um, actively resist those things in court. Uh, I wanted to just highlight two efforts that we've made in Wisconsin 
to actually enforce those safeguards because it seems to me important that we be on the offensive as well as the defensive. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, Hans and Christian, I think, both alluded to the fact that we do a very, very poor job of maintaining the registration rolls. Uh, we, um, uh, Pew Center uh, estimates that uh, one in eight voter registrations are outdated or substantially inaccurate. That's about 24 million people. And it doesn't take fraud for that to happen. Uh, most of us, when we move, we don't contact our municipal, uh, municipal officials and, and tell them that we've moved. Our names remain registered at the wrong address. And so uh, for that reason, uh, Wisconsin, like many other states, have enacted legal safeguards uh, to require the rolls to be cleaned up. Now, one in particular has to do uh, with removing movers from the list. Uh, Wisconsin law requires that if an election official has learned uh, that it, it is likely that a voter has moved, has reasonable information, reasonable indicator that a voter has moved, uh, then the election official has a duty. It's a mandatory duty. You send that voter a notice. The voter has 30 days uh, to either say, no, I haven't moved, I still live at this address, uh, uh, or uh, the voter's registration will be deactivated, and a postcard is generally provided to permit that to happen. Uh, this past spring, uh, last, uh, actually last fall, uh, the Wisconsin Election Commission announced that it would not comply with that rule. And it would not comply with that rule in conjunction with uh, data that the state of Wisconsin itself pays for and receives. It belongs to a consortium called the Election Registration Information Center, often referred to as ERIC. And ERIC generates a movers list, which consists of the identity of voters who themselves have provided information to a government agency indicating that he or she does not live at the address at which they're registered. Uh, we have found that this list is overwhelmingly accurate um, it ought to trigger the mailing of one of these postcards in order to clean up the voter rolls, but the Wisconsin Election Commission has decided that it's not going to do that. It's going to allow these voters to remain on the rolls through the 2020 election and beyond. Um, so we did what we do. Uh, we filed a lawsuit uh, last uh, November against the Wisconsin Election Commission, uh, seeking to compel them on behalf of a number of Wisconsin voters to follow the law. Uh, we were initially successful. Uh, we received an order from the circuit court judge uh, ordering the commission uh, to comply with the law. The commission refused to do that. They, they voted three to three on partisan grounds and couldn't break the deadlock. The circuit court held them, actually held them in contempt of court. Uh, and I've been practicing law for a long time. Don't, don't let my youthful appearance fool you. I have never had to have anybody held in contempt of court before, but, but I did for the first time. Uh, but unfortunately, a court of appeals in Madison, Wisconsin, reversed the circuit court decision. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has now accepted that case, and it will be argued uh, next month, and we'll find out whether the voter rolls have to be cleaned up or not. Uh, the second project that we've undertaken has to do with uh, uh, something that Hans described called ballot harvesting. Now, ballot harvesting is legal in California. It's illegal in many states, and in many other states, it's of uncertain validity. Uh, Wisconsin may fall into that category. We believe that the law properly read and interpreted uh, prohibits ballot harvesting, but many others, including staff at the Wisconsin Election Commission, have taken the position 
that ballot harvesting is permissible. And as, as Hans described, it is an occasion for political sin. We have political activists requesting ballots on behalf of voters, delivering them to voters, talking to voters about who they should vote for, and then deciding whether or not to return the ballots once they've been filled out. What could go wrong with a process like that? Uh, uh, we filed a rules petition with the Wisconsin Election Commission asking them to read the law in what we believe is the proper way and to um, make clear that ballot harvesting is not permitted in the swing state of Wisconsin. Uh, the Wisconsin Election Commission uh, consists of three Democrats and three Republicans by design. Uh, it's split three to three. Uh, you can guess what the partisan breakdown was, but it was a partisan breakdown. And uh, uh, so uh, we don't have that clarification from the Wisconsin Election Commission. We will go into the cycle. I cannot tell you, I cannot guarantee you that litigation will ensue, but you know, I would think that it's likely that litigation will ensue, but this time it will be uh, an attempt to enforce what I believe is a proper interpretation of the law, and that is that ballot harvesting it will, uh, uh, is not permitted uh, in, in our state, and I don't think it should be prohibited in any state. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, I've described a couple of projects that we've undertaken here now uh, in, in August of 2020. I've been doing this long enough to know that uh, things will happen uh, between now and election day uh, that none of us anticipated and uh, that will require uh, an immediate response. So uh, when you ask what you can do, um, I think the most important thing is to be vigilant, uh, to work with groups like ours. And uh, I, I am sure that it will be a very interesting uh, couple of months. So stay tuned. Uh, uh, Rick, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Thanks so much, Rick, and to Hans and Christian for those great comments. Uh, but let's begin the conversation part of our program today by asking each of you to consider the end game this year. What's the best scenario for this general election? And on the other hand, what's the worst case scenario? Who wants to kick it off? I, 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 well, I'll, I'll uh, do it just very quickly. Look, the best case scenario is that election officials realize that people have a right to vote in person and they do everything they can from recruiting uh, uh, poll workers, trying to um, dampen down the paranoia about that, perhaps even doubling the pay to get some of these young people who are out of college or having trouble finding jobs uh, to work and get as many polling places open as possible. And they do not, we, what we don't want to have happen, and this is the worst case scenario, what we don't want to have happen is what happened in the District of Columbia, for example, when they held a primary uh, uh, some weeks ago. They encouraged everyone to vote by absentee ballot and decided, well, because everybody would be voting through the mail, uh, they would reduce the number of open polling places from their normal 100 to only 20. And then, of course, what happened was many of the uh, absentee ballots have been requested were not delivered. And so people who had requested the ballots uh, showed up at their polling places to vote and they had very long lines. People had to wait for hours to try to vote. And what we need is uh, polling places open, uh, as many of them as possible for, for what you would have for a regular election, yeah. Health safety protocols in place and uh, not a huge increase in uh, or, or a, a switch to universal mail-in elections. Christian? Well, I, I, uh, 
I hate uh, to disagree slightly with my good friend and colleague Hans about the worst case scenario, but I think he'll agree with me when I say that the worst case scenario is Speaker Pelosi becoming president of the United States <laughs> temporarily. And here's how that works. Right. If this election is not resolved in sufficient time, the Constitution has a provision where the Speaker of the House, which Nancy Pelosi currently is, would become the president of the United States until the election can resolve. And I think that's something that nobody uh, who put aside the fact that it's Nancy Pelosi for a minute, nobody who believes in the stability uh, of our Constitution, despite their faith in the founders in putting that provision in there, wants to see it activated. Well, oh, look, I, I just very quickly, I, I agree with that, although it's a statutory provision, but that is highly likely if, in fact, we have a huge increase in mail elections. Uh, if, uh, just look at what happened in New York. Uh, New York, it's taken them six weeks since the end of June primary to um, try to count ballots, six weeks, and you don't have as much turnout in a primary as you do in a general election. And not only are the results being contested, but one in five ballots were rejected. An extremely high disenfranchisement rate, much higher than for in-person voting. Rick? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think that the best case scenario, um, putting aside who you want to win the election, is that the public have confidence in the results. We live in a, uh, a polarized country, and one of the reasons that we do what we do and ensure that the rule of law is followed is because participants in a game, and an election is in some ways a game, will have the most confidence in it when everyone adheres to the rules that have been agreed upon in advance. So I think it's absolutely essential, particularly if we have a lot of mail voting, that these safeguards remain in place. Doing away with them is not the proper way to go. Uh, I am a little bit optimistic in the sense that um, I think what I think our experience here in Wisconsin did show that it's possible to do this. Remember, we went from a normal election to an election that was uh, uh, affected by COVID during the process uh, of early voting, right? We started early voting and nobody thought much about COVID at all. And by the time uh, it uh, came around on April 7th, uh, we were at the height of the COVID scare. And nevertheless, with, with some notable exceptions, I mentioned the city of Milwaukee, uh, municipal officials were able to do this. The post office was able to do this we were able to have in-person voting. Nobody got sick. Um, and so uh, uh, when we are told that we have to abandon the rule of law because all of these horrible things uh, will happen if we don't, um, I would offer my state, Rick's state, uh, as an example that this simply isn't true. Uh, we, we can do this. And uh, we did it once before under a difficult situation and, and in a much easier situation and much more lead time, uh, we can do it again and we can do it across the country. Agreed. And we had another uh, primary election in Wisconsin just last week. I voted in person and it was entirely safe. The safeguards were in place. It was well done. And again, no reports of problems whatsoever. We've got about uh, 15 or 20 minutes left for audience questions, and let's let's jump in there. We've got a, a, a great number of questions from the audience that, unfortunately, we won't be able to get to all of them. But let's start with this really good question from Sarah, and, and she asked, do you theorize that the left strategy 
for pushing mail voting as a turnout strategy, in other words, increasing turnout for a, a low enthusiasm candidate, uh, such as Vice President Biden, or on the other hand, a strategy to destabilize trust in the election outcome for the purposes of litigation. Christian? Let me take a stab at that. I, here's what I think. I was on a talk show today talking about this possible answer. And that is that when COVID hit, they spent immediate uh, energy to turn this into a Trump issue, that the whole uh, virus was a way to get at the president and destabilize his reelection chances. And one of the tactics was to scare people to death. And that's why you have scolds running around with tape measures in grocery stores that I've written about uh, yelling at people. And I think that that was a concerted effort to scare people, and then suddenly they're riding the tiger and they can't let go, and they realize that their voters are too scared to go vote in person. And now they have to spend federal money and philanthropic money to compensate for scaring their base to death that they can't vote in person. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I, I, look, I agree with that. And the one thing I would say about this is, is, is there, there's two factors here. Uh, and again, you can see this in the proposed bills to deal with COVID-19, for example, the Nancy Pelosi drop. They saw COVID-19 as an opportunity to get all of the election changes that they wanted and they've been pushing for for years, such as getting rid of voter voter ID. Now, that's got nothing to do with dealing with, with COVID-19 whatsoever. Um, but the second thing is, and this is very unfortunate, look, I just published a Heritage paper on, it's a case study of four absentee ballot fraud cases. These are cases in which people were convicted, in which elections were overturned. And the common factor you find in all of these cases where there's large-scale absentee ballot fraud is that the, the folks in the conspiracy, who do they prey on? They prey on people who are poor, uh, the elderly, uh, minority voters, and others who they believe they can coerce and pressure to vote a particular way, or as, as one particular guy said who was convicted in Troy, New York, um, uh, where they picked on a low-income housing neighborhood, he said, well, these are the people who they believed would be least likely to complain about their vote being stolen. And I think that is unfortunately part of what is going on here in trying to change the rules and switch to a, as much uh, mail-in balloting as possible. And I, I, I think voter suppression, allegations of voter suppression, it's a political strategy. Um, it's a way of waving the red flag. Um, it's based on an ideology that the right to vote is the most sacred right we possess, but yet no one can be expected to exercise any responsibility whatsoever with respect to that. Any type of ballot security measure, any type of thing that tends to bring regularity to an election is going to require voters to do something. I mean, registration itself requires voters to do something. Um, but I think all of this has been recast as uh, voter suppression and, and I think it is um, a political strategy. And we see that in the narrative about the post office now, which is something that, you know, if you if you give it even the slightest examination, you know, it falls apart. I mean, there's really nothing to it. Let's go to this question from Robert Ault from Ohio, obviously another very important state. Uh, Robert asked, what's the most important thing, the single most important thing that viewers could do to help ensure the integrity of elections between now and Election Day? 
Well, I think Christian Christian mentioned at the end of his talk is um, uh, try to be be a poll worker in your neighborhood, working in the polls as someone who can help enforce the laws. And part of that is, look, right now, election officials are making the decisions on how many polling places are they going to have open, you know, how they're going to have the election. And people need to be calling local officials, both in the county election department, uh, their state legislators and others, and insisting that polling places be open, that they have a right to vote in person to cast their ballot, and they need to be pushing them to do that rather than trying to switch to this kind of universal all-male election system. One important postscript to what Hans just said, it's important to understand the difference between a poll worker and a poll observer. What he's talking about is being the official not a party representative, not a candidate representative. Be the person with the power. That's the important part. Be the person making decisions, not advocating for decisions. Rick, any comments? Um, You know, I I, I agree with all of that. I I, I think the, but I I think it's important for all of us not not to buy into this notion that uh, any effort at all to enforce the rule of law and to um, have reasonable ballot security measures is, you know, some type of uh, effort at, at at voter suppression or the maintenance of white supremacy or what other whatever other sort of overwrought allegations are made. Um, I, I think that uh, it, it's important for us to understand that uh, vote to vote is a right, to vote is a responsibility. And uh, efforts to ensure that it is exercised in accordance with the law um, are, are something that are to be welcomed and not um, maligned. Real quick, Rick, I, I have to mention on that voter suppression thing. I have, for a couple of years now, offered a $500 gift card bounty to anybody who can find the term voter suppression in federal law. It's a made up term that blends together legal activity with illegal activity to smear people. It does not exist in federal law. There is no voter suppression federal statute. It's a made up term on the left. And if you can find one in the federal code, you get a $500 gift card from me. (laughs) Let's go to a question from Henry Olson. Henry asks, uh, what would you do to ascertain after the fact whether mass voter fraud occurred and how can conservatives uncover where this takes place? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Public Interest Legal Foundation has been building a database for the last year plus, collecting public information about this, uh, Henry, and we should have an announcement in the next two weeks. What we did is we looked at all the voter rolls, we cross-referenced them with commercial data, death data, duplicate data. We've got names of people who are voting twice uh, in, in same state elections. You know, I mentioned Rashawn Slade, Rashawn didn't commit a crime, but he was registered to vote seven times in Pennsylvania. And that's not an outlier. We have that all over the country, not always seven times, but more than once. Uh, and so, Henry, stay tuned. You'll uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the next few weeks. I, I will add it is extremely difficult to detect this kind of fraud after an election. Uh, usually you only have a, if you're a candidate, you only have a very short time to contest the election. Um, again, one of the case studies that I talk about in my paper, the judge in that particular case is a case out of um, uh, uh, Indiana, another one out of Miami, talked about how difficult it is 
to investigate these kind of cases, because one of the only ways you can do it is to individually interview voters. It's extremely hard. And the other problem here is that even when you uncover it all too often, prosecutors and election officials aren't interested in doing about it. Just one quick example of this. After the 2016 election, a, a, another great organization, the Government Accountability Institute down in Florida, they compared the voter registration and voter history databases of a number of states. They found 8,500 individuals who had illegally voted in more than one state in the 2016 election. Um, not a single election official and not a single prosecutor in any of the states that they talked about in their report contacted them and asked for the names of those individuals so they could, one, take them off the voter list, and two, investigate them for possible prosecution. If they had, our database, which now has about 1,300 cases, probably would have had over 10,000 cases, but they didn't do anything about it. Rick, we've had a tough time in Wisconsin uh, after the fact, haven't we? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking, uh, I think it was the 2004 election cycle, Rick, uh, where uh, I was at a polling place, and at one point there were um, eight lawyers at this single polling place. You know, it was $5,000 an hour in uh, top-scale uh, legal uh, services being provided. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that uh, there could have been people cheating left and right, and nobody would have been able to discern what that was. There have been attempts after the fact to, to look for anomalies. Um, this is particularly important in a state like Wisconsin, where we have same-day registration, where you're able to register to vote and cast a ballot um, with what, what I think everyone has to agree is easily fabricated proof of residence. Now, I actually think that one of the values of photo ID is it makes it hard to effectuate that scheme to its end. Um, but but doesn't make it impossible. And, uh, you know, what, what happens, and we had a report by the Milwaukee Police Department in, you know, 2008, and a, and a, a lot of uh, abuse was heaped on that report. Um, but but you got to look for anomalies. You have to look for things that make no sense. Uh, when, when, when postcards are sent out and people are asked to confirm that they vote and the postcards don't come back, it's not necessarily a clerical error, right? It could mean that something went wrong. And uh, once again, uh, the, the most important thing uh, for all of us is to understand that uh, an, an attempt to, to check that on the back end, um, even if it isn't something that will result in the invalidation of an election, is something that gives important information about what happened and, and what type of rule changes we need to make going forward. We have time for one or two more questions. Another good question from Andrew. Andrew asks, do you think because of all the hysteria on both sides of the aisle that no matter who wins, a large swath of voters will not see the election as legitimate, even if the winner is announced in a timely fashion? Rick, go for it. it, it, it that may happen, particularly if the election is close. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, I was saying one of the things that we need to figure out is whether an election is beyond the margin of fraud or beyond the margin of litigation. Uh, uh, most of them are, but but some of them aren't. And uh, uh, you know, I, I I I used to teach election law, and one of the things uh, that you used to be able to do, I don't know if the link is still alive, is you could uh, 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 look at the New York Times Consortium's recount of Florida uh, in 2000, 
And there is a scenario in Florida, and it's a likely scenario. You, you pick what kind of ballots you want to count, dimple chad, pregnant chad, however you know you want to put. But a very reasonable counting scenario shows that George won Florida by two votes in 2000. So one guy who staggered into the voting booth uh, on election day decided who was going to be president in the United States. And so um, I, I think if the election is close like that, particularly if if we don't adhere to the rules that were written beforehand, and I think there is some likelihood that uh, that, that, that people are not, are not going to accept it. Uh, because, you know, look what happened. You know, 2004, uh, you know, the election wasn't all that close, and yet there were still Democrats who uh, wouldn't accept the fact that, uh, uh, that that Bush had been reelected, making up stories about, you know, Diebold machines and that type of thing. So it's a real, it's a real problem. No, I, I agree. I agree with what, what Rick said. Uh, maybe this will be the last question we'll see. It might be a Hans question. The question is, can you address issues with voting machine coding fraud? Yeah, look, I know there's a lot of folks out there who worry about that. Um, I, what I will say is that uh, so far, uh, there hasn't been a single case proven. Uh, some years ago, there were allegations that were actually investigated down in Florida in a congressional race that, that basically claimed that the electronic voting machines um, had been tampered with to uh, uh, change the outcome of an election. And those machines, I think, were examined in that investigation. They were unable to, to, sh to show that that uh, had actually occurred. Um, I guess what I would say about this is I, 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 my concern is actually more with not electronic voting machines. Uh, what I would be concerned about uh, more with is making sure that county election officials don't have their central computers, the ones that actually total up the numbers that they're getting from all the precincts. Uh, those should not be tied into the regular network that a, a, a county government has to allow uh, hackers to get into it from outside. That was, that's my biggest concern. As long as they're not doing that, as long as it is separate from the regular network, uh, I, I guess I'm not too concerned about that issue. Uh, I would also point out that while we do have electronic voting machines in jurisdictions across the country, the vast majority of folks these days vote with an OptiScan ballot. You know, that's a paper ballot where you fill in the bubble next to the person's name. It is then put into a ballot box after being scanned to count the vote. But if there's any questions about the software being used in the computer scanner to count the vote, you've got the actual ballots. And so it's got a great audit trail. And some states are switching to electronic voting machines that actually print out the ballot after you've made the choices. So again, those are good because they have a, an audit trail. It's something we should be on the lookout for and take precautions about. But so far, there hasn't been any evidence that hackers have been able to get into any of the electronic systems we use for casting votes or counting votes to change the outcome of an election. Thanks, Hans. Uh we are at the top of the hour and uh, regrettably out of time. Uh, thanks so much to uh, our panelists for a really informative event. Uh, a reminder that recording of this event will post in 48 hours. Uh, encourage you to visit the heritage.org slash events webpage 
to enjoy this and other webinars. And I really do hope that the last hour inspires everyone to take action to protect the integrity of our elections in November. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much.